and speak at the midweek uh, service, and I was here, and I was a wee bit closer. Um, there's normally about three or four rows gap from the front in most churches anyway, so if you've then got a big stage and a pulpit, you're even further. So it's actually good to be a wee bit closer, and one thing as well, when I'm down here, I know that there isn't a trapdoor here which goes off after 30 minutes, um, whereas uh, up there, I, 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 well, I'm, I'm not taking any chances. Um, You'll know what happens when a preacher takes off his watch. I think maybe you've mentioned that before. Do you know what it means when a preacher takes his watch off and puts it at the side? Absolutely nothing, yes. And you you knew that here. Um, It's good to be back, and I am not going to give a mission report as such on Rwanda. You know those kind of mission reports. God bless missionaries. I've got um, very good family friends who, who have been missionaries. You know the ones where you click through slide after slide after slide after slide and they tell you a wee bit about them and it's great for the first 20 minutes but then after that you want to be interested because it's a great work but you kind of, if you're really honest, you kind of switch off when you're thinking, right, when's this, when's this done? This will not be like that um, as there's a picture of the North African coast up there from the aeroplane. The only reason I took that is because the first time I'd ever been over African airspace and uh, I will ended up, obviously, with Africa and the soles of my shoes. I think that might have been a Paul Simon line. Somebody can uh, confirm that or correct me on that in the future, if you wish. But I wanted to, uh, to, to share with all of you, mums, dads, and I should have said earlier, grands, grandpas, in fact, all adults. There are, some are not mums or dads or grands or grandpas. But I was speaking, as I was speaking to the kids, I suppose I did use that term in the hope that they might later on go home and talk about these things with their parents. But it's good to speak to all of you. And the, the questions that I had for them are just the same for us. The two questions are this. Why doesn't God do something about bad things? That's the first question. Secondly, where is Christ when I'm going through suffering? Big, big questions. Now, I I asked myself that many times in Rwanda, and I could only find answers in Christ and in his word. I didn't have answers to share with anybody that I came into contact with, but I needed to find answers because I'm a a pastor, I'm a theologian, I'm a a thinker, I'm a preacher, a philosopher. These things I I cannot help mulling over at 4 a.m. when I'm not sleeping, and I'm not sleeping because I'm mulling them over. That's just the way my mind works. Ask my wife. Um, She's suffered for many years um, from late nights and early rises for different different, uh, uh, thoughts that I have been giving to the the things in life. But the reason I do is because I I believe and know that God in some way wants me to try and, and share and communicate that with others. And that's got to be done as simply as a four year old child can understand but also so that we can understand our problems as adults are different. Kids and adults all have problems. Uh, My son will have issues in the playground just as much as I have issues with other church leaders or people or uh, colleagues that you have at work or whatever. We all have problems. And probably our problems in this land, the problems I go through, pale into insignificance to the issues that the Rwandan people and the people that we, people in the church and the whole land have been dealing with in the last 25 years. There is no comparison. But that does not minimize the problems that you and I have today or this week. We all have problems. And for us, when we're going through them, they're big. Now, 
they might not be big to somebody else, but they're big to you if you're dealing with it at the time. And some of us have a different hierarchy of problems. Some of us get worked up about the littlest things that some of us would go, what are they worrying about? Look what I've got to deal with. And some of us are perhaps the opposite. Some of us probably take things really seriously. The little things, and we're very more sensitive and very caring about others who've got problems, however great or small they may be. But I know this, if we all got our problems and we all sat in a circle and we all put them in a bag and we all put them in the middle and we all had to give them a rummage and we all swapped them, took them back, and if we ended up with somebody else's, it doesn't matter what they are, you would want to hand it back and take your own back. You would not want anybody else's, regardless of what they were. You'd rather have your own. And God gives us the grace, it says in his word, to deal with these things to the point that we can just about deal with it, but not beyond the points which we can handle it. Whether that's temptation or whether that's the problems of life. And believe it or not, it's the same in Rwanda. Even although in a country of 12.5 million people, which is a third of the size of Scotland, nearly 1 million people were butchered to death by machetes 25 years ago. I don't know if you remember what happened in Rwanda in the spring of 1994, between the 6th of April 94 and the beginning of July in 100 days. Perhaps if you were like me, you were mourning the loss of Kurt Cobain, the lead singer of Nirvana. Perhaps if you were a little older um, and interested in the news, perhaps you were watching a helicopter chase O.J. Simpson at a very slow pace through the streets of L.A., with the TV cameras above, perhaps you were watching that. But whatever you were doing, and I do remember seeing some of the Rwandan news articles on the news because I was sitting my hires, and I remember watching it. The world looked away as one million Tutsis died at the hands of the Hutus. After the Holocaust, after saying never again, the world let it happen again. The UN walked away. America wasn't interested. The Belgians walked away. The French were complicit. It was a travesty of humanity. I've just started reading the book by the UN commander, Romeo Dallaire. His book is called Shake Hands with the Devil. Because he actually met and shook hands with the Interahamwe leaders. The Interahamwe were the Hutu militia, which planned a number of months or years in advance and instigated and carried out the genocide. And the official name for the genocide is the genocide. This is in the UN Charter. This is how it's termed, if you want to be correct. It's the genocide against the Tutsi. It's not the Rwandan genocide. The Tutsis were targeted systematically by militant wings of the government, the army, and civilian militias of Hutu tribes people. And there's a whole history of that which goes back to the Belgian colonization in the 1920s and their policy in the 1950s and 60s, which I'm not going to get into because this isn't a politics or a history class. And there'll be other opportunities for you to fall asleep, but I don't want to put you to sleep right now. So if you want to go and study that, you can. And at the end, I'll put up my email and also a couple of a film and a book and a couple of references, etc. I was there under the auspices of Comfort International. They used to be Comfort Rwanda, but they now do work in Uganda, Burundi, and the Congo. And I was there with the director, Callum Henderson. Callum, although he would never say so, is a bit of a big shot in Scottish-Rwandan relations. He is actually the honorary consul for Rwanda 
to Scotland. That was an honor and title given to him by Paul Kagame's government because of his 20 years of ministry and assistance for the Rwandan people and church uh, through Comfort. And Comfort support two organizations in Rwanda, Solace and Good News. But I was there for most of the week to teach at the Comfort International Ministry School, which was a college for up to 70 pastors and church leaders from Rwandan churches. Some of them who remain in their own church, mostly the Free Methodist Church. Some of them who have come out of their church because other church members or even their church leaders who are Hutu took part in the genocide 25 years ago. So they simply cannot go and worship with these people as much as they try to forgive them or as much as these people have repented. It's a horrible, horrible situation for the country to be in. The biggest church is the Roman Catholic Church and then the Seventh-day Adventists are second and then I think it's the Free Methodist Church. But I stayed with uh, uh, in a guest house which is run by a lovely man, uh, a pastor who ministers mainly to church groups of people who are outside of their church because of their experiences. And there'll be lot, you can get lots of information on the Comfort International website. I don't have stuff to give out because I would don't, I'm not seeing Callum to next week. Callum's coming to Coatbridge Baptist. Um, I'm speaking and he's coming along um, and he'll be there with information. But before I just share a few pictures and a couple of thoughts on the two questions I asked, let me read a couple of passages which begin to offer answers to the two questions that we posed to the children earlier on. Paul says at the end of the 11th chapter of Romans, he says this, and I wanted to hold these two passages just in your thoughts. Just, in fact, before I do that, is there water up here, Jason? That's why you should stand up here, because that's where the water is. No, no, there isn't. Okay, fine. No rush. Um, no rush, that's fine. So, let me read from Romans 11. Paul says this. This is important. Now, some people have turned this into a, a, a reason for universalism. That's the heresy that God loves everybody and everybody's going to heaven. Have you ever heard that? God is love. Jesus is love. Nothing matters. Just be nice. Just be cool, man. We're all, we're all sometimes it's preached, we're all Jack, Jock, Thompson's bairns. We're all going to heaven together. Some people have misinterpreted this. This is not what it says. It says that this is what God wants to do. It doesn't say that this is what God will do. There's a difference. And the other verse I read from Paul in 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Peter, um, it, it, it's similar. It's similar. It can be misinterpreted in different ways. But this is not saying God loves everybody, so do what you like. This does not say Jesus loves you so you can go and hack down your neighbor because they're a tootsie. This does not say God loves you so much you can live as you like. Sin doesn't matter. Forget the Ten Commandments. The Bible does not contradict itself. If you think the Bible says means something and it says something else somewhere else, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. You're reading it wrong. So you need to pray. Thanks, Jason. So you need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit or a wise Christian or your pastor, look, can you help me understand this? Because if you don't, with some things in life, you're all at sea, whether it's personal or whether it's in the church. There are 300 ways to read the Bible. It depends which spectacles you've got on. And sometimes some of us wear the wrong spectacles. And you need to be humble enough and holy and spiritual enough to realize that maybe your glasses ain't the right prescription. 
And you've got to take them off and get the right glasses on and read the Bible as you should be reading it. That's just a little aside, just a little bugbear of mine as a pastor and a, a preacher. Because it says here, God at the end, he may have mercy on them all. It doesn't say he will have mercy on them all. That's why I'm saying this. But this is partly an answer to the question, the first question we asked. Why doesn't God do something about this? Well, here's kind of why he doesn't at the moment. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men and women over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So why is there all sorts of bad stuff happening in the last 2,000 years? That provides part of an answer. Because God wants to have mercy on all of us. That's not to say we all receive mercy. God wants to give us it. But sometimes we don't want it. There'll be nobody in hell against their will. Anybody in hell is because they said no to Jesus Christ in this life. And if you think about it, it makes sense. If you don't want to live with Jesus for 70 years on earth, why would you want to live with him for eternity? God is the absolute gentleman. He is the politest of men. He chaps in the door and he waits for it to be answered. He doesn't kick it in. Jesus is the gate, but he's the only way you can enter. And that is important because there will be hundreds of thousands of murderers in Rwanda who will not repent, who are still in jail, who will not tell the authorities where the mass graves are. You can't have these people in heaven. Heaven's perfect and holy. Of course, if they repent, and many have, and many have made up with, Hutu, eh, with Tutsi families whose relatives they have killed. The reconciliation there is astonishing at times. But there has to be a place for people who reject Jesus Christ. But God wants to have mercy on all of us. And then towards the end of Peter's second letter, Peter says this, just a second verse on our question. Why doesn't, why doesn't God do something? Peter says something about God's patience. And his patience and his mercy are linked. He's patient because he wants to have mercy on us. And he wants to have mercy on us because he's patient. And he says this, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Although we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. He's not slow. He might be slow in our understanding of time, but he's not slow. He's not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he is patient with you, with all of us, not wanting anyone to perish. It doesn't say nobody will perish. You've, I've heard it read that way before. That's rubbish. It doesn't say nobody will perish. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Difference. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. So, those who committed those terrible crimes, 
He wants to have mercy on them. He doesn't want them to perish. But unless they repent, they will. And it's the same for you and me. Because the killers with the machetes are no worse than me. My sin or you and your sin. Whatever your sin is, if you continue in consistent rebellious sin for your whole life and reject Jesus' request for repentance and obedience, that's fine. That's your choice. When the roadblocks were set up in Kigali and the rest of Rwanda, and yet as they sat there and got drunk and they were looking at the identity cards to work out Hutu or Tutsi, yeah, you could say that in some way the devil had entered the nation and had his hand on it for 100 days, but these guys did this of their own free will. Nobody gets off the hook and says, the devil made me do it. Nobody. And I mention these verses as a, because I read them trying to understand as I was in Rwanda, how could all this happen? And I just want to flick through to a couple of pictures, ask these questions, and share my thoughts, and share the, to the best of my understanding what God's purposes are in this, because you look at that and you wonder, goodness me, God, what is your purpose in this? Now, I have to say Rwanda now is in a better place than all of the countries around it. Because of the genocide, because everything was just obliterated, people and mainly people, human beings, but there's been a rebuilding, there's been a restructuring of everything, whether that's roads, facilities. I mean, it's still Africa right enough, and it, quite rightly, it should be. There's still guys going along the road on their bikes with wide loads, which are wider than your biggest Arctic truck. There's still women walking along, balancing two tons weights in their heads with no hands. There's still kids walking for three miles with yellow jerry cans full of water. There's still babies strapped to their mum's back and these lovely wee shawls, you know, kind of with their legs out like this. I mean, it, it, it's, it's Africa, it's great. But it's been through a terrible time. Um, there's a number of pictures here I won't dwell on. I visited an orphanage there where... The, some of the Ebenezer folks support the kids there. Just keep flicking through, David. That was some of the kids at the college. The college is in the background where I taught. I want to just say one thing about the college. If you go through the pictures, I'll get to the college class. That's the college. There were about 50 certificate. Uh, there was a, a certificate and a diploma level, kind of a foundation and a sort of senior level, kind of like HNCHND probably level, which is quite high for Rwanda. All Rwandan church leaders must have a certification of theological education before they can officially be recognized by the government that their church can be recognized. And that is very important. That is very, very good reason. That's not because the government wants to influence Christian theology through totalitarian thought like the Russians did under the Cold, under the Cold War. Not at all. Paul Kagame is a good man. He's very supportive of the church. It's because he doesn't want people leading churches that have got dodgy teaching. And I tell you what, we could do with that in Scotland. Because there's plenty of churches where there's pastors or preachers and they are not fit to open a Bible, let alone tell what it says to the people sitting in the pews. But they've got it in Rwanda because there's a risk of two things. Prosperity teaching. If you're really, really poor and you've got some black African guy in a suit looking like a Mzungu, which is a white man. If you've got some black African guy in a suit and a tie saying, Jesus will give you everything. Oh, and give the church 10%. It's very, very, very uh, appealing. And it's a problem in India as well, um, where I've also been. Um, so that's an issue, that false teaching, the prosperity teaching is an issue. 
There are one or two other issues in, in, in wrong teaching, um, which they don't jump to me um, immediately, but that doesn't matter. So they have to have a certification so that they can be approved to teach. Put it this way, would you let a heart surgeon open you up if you hadn't done their seven years in the college and all their training? You're lying in the operating table and the heart surgeon says, oh, I'm just winging it this week. Just picked this up, you know, went on Google. You know, wiki, wiki hearts. Would you let a heart surgeon do that to you? No. A doctor, a nurse, a brickie, a house builder. Would you, would, you, would you live in a house if the site building manager had not done his four or five years apprenticeship or whatever? Yeah, I just got a bunch of guys together. Oh, there's some bricks. Oh, well, that'll do. That's nearly straight. Ah, fine, no problem. Why do we allow that in the church? Tell me. If anybody's got a good answer for that, happy to chat to you afterwards. So anyway, this is my uh, lower level class, the sort of foundation level class with about 50 students and my fabulous translator whose name was Abel. And he could not have been more able, I'm telling you. He must speak six languages. He made me feel, and there's a few people who make me feel very stupid, and some tell me that, but he made me feel very, very stupid. Um, he's an extremely clever man. I think he was from Uganda. He must speak about six or seven languages, Swahili, Bantu, all sorts. He was able to translate complex theological ideas from English into Kinyarwanda. Ideas that sometimes are difficult for some of us to understand in our own language, and he was just so that these students could understand it. Amazing. This was the higher class, the certificate class, and I really enjoyed this. Some of they're a higher level of academic qualification, and some of them are, some of them speak English. Uh, the guy at the front you'll see in the next slide is Claude. He was one of my translators. And the big guy in the middle was my, my other translator, Ose. Hosea from the Old Testament was his name, but it's called Ose. And I loved these guys. They translated for me um, Ose most of the time. Uh, Claude, um, when Ose, Claude would translate when Ose had to have a sit down because he's a big guy. Um, so Claude, Claude would sometimes translate. i just flick back to the college, David, for a second. I just want to say something. One of the girls in the class, and, and the college was, was really a great experience, and I, I've, I'm very grateful that the students wanted to have me back, Comfort wanted to have me back, and Callum has asked me to go back. Um, and if I'm able to go back, I will go back. And Callum has approved, he's, he's encouraged me to, if I'm ever speaking about Rwanda, he's encouraged me to share my experiences with the churches and ask for support. If you are out there as a Scottish teacher, you fund yourself, it's between 1,000 and 1,500 pounds. And that's your hotel, your flights, all sorts of things. Comfort, don't pay for that. They rely on teachers going from Scotland supported so that we can then teach those classes four times a year. But really, you're helping comfort. You're helping the Rwandan church. You're investing in 70 church leaders who in turn go to their churches out in the sticks and teach good Christian teaching to their young fledging churches. That's what you're supporting um, and I'll not say any more about that. You can email me at the end if you wish. But the, the, the real message I wanted to get across from the college, it, it was a great experience, but there was a young girl at the back called Jossian. Now this class, the first class we were studying the Old Testament. It was the hope of the Messiah in the Old Testament in two and a half days. Try that one for size. And the, the second half of the week, it was higher level for the certificate class. It was a, a, deep, a deep study of Isaiah. Approaches, methods, interpretation, all sorts of stuff. Fantastic. And um, the highlight for me was, now they were supposed to be doing an exercise studying the servant songs, 
So one, one lady wasn't doing what she was told, but it's because something, well, she did it earlier, but there was something that had just gripped her that she had to share with the class. I've mentioned a little bit about the history of Rwanda, the genocide. You'll need to go and read about that yourself. But Paul Kagame was the leader of the RPF, the Rwandan Patriotic Front. They'd been in exile in Uganda for a number of years because of the many persecutions against the Tutsis by the Hutu over decades since independence from Belgium in 1961. It got so bad that the Rwandan Patriotic Front formed as freedom fighters, and they were exiled in Uganda, and they were preparing to move in and try and take government. The reason the UN were there is because there was a dodgy ceasefire in the north of the country. But the Hutus had been killing and attacking and persecuting Tutsis for 40 years. Um, so it's, it's no different maybe from the Second World War, maybe a resistance movement growing up in France against the Nazis, and it's a, full of Jews. It's that kind of thing, okay? So they, they, they eventually came to power and ended the genocide in July 94. He came in and invaded the country, and the, the, it's taken a long time to process uh, Hutus, to find bodies, which I'll talk to in a, about in a minute, um, just to warn you. And he's been in power for 25 years, and he's, he's been recognized as having done a fairly decent job in Africa, and he's, the country is in a good place. But the point is, one of the girls, we'd been discussing the Messiah in Isaiah, and the same person could have asked this in the Old Testament class, but the one girl, Jossian, stood up and said, let's, um, can I just, Peter, just talk, let's talk about Cyrus in chapter 45, 46. The Hebrew word for Cyrus in Isaiah that Isaiah uses is Messiah. Now, he doesn't call Cyrus the Messiah. He says that Cyrus is a Messiah. Cyrus came from Persia to sack Babylon in 539, so the Jewish people who had been exiled for 70 years could return to Jerusalem and the prophecy of 70 years through Jeremiah was fulfilled and the people all came home. They were freed. And Jocelyn stood up and she said, Peter, I've been reading about Cyrus. It say, Isaiah says he was a Messiah. Isaiah says he was a savior. 25 years ago, when my people were being slaughtered, God gave us a savior. Kagami came in and helped us he was, a, he was like Cyrus. And she sussed how this 2,700-year-old text spoke to her in her situation, and I was just blown away. I thought it was a wonderful thing to share. And there's so many other things like that in college, but don't have time. Let's just, let me just share one thing before we finish about the memori memorials. Callum and Billy and I went to the 25th anniversary memorials Big events on the Friday and the Saturday. I was very honored to be there. The first one here was the Friday, and there was a lady sharing. Many people shared their testimonies, and they went on for an hour. African time just works slower than Scotland and white man's time, okay? Africans say, you white man, you have the watch. We Africans, we have the time. If, something say, if somebody says in Africa it starts at 9, it's a guide. It'll probably start by 10, maybe half 10, as people start to flow in. You know, it's like a red light in India on the, on the roads, just a guide. It's not, it's not for real. So the same is the case when somebody's speaking, particularly if you're listening to a genocide survivor sharing their tale. If they're standing up there and they talk for an hour about the horrors that they experienced, as a mark of respect, you sit and listen. And if there's six of them to speak, like the Saturday, and it goes from half nine to half three, and you're sitting in a suit, Billy and Callum are wearing suits. Thankfully, I just was shutting, shutting trousers. 
because um, they were more important than me, so they had to wear a collar and tie. I didn't, so I was okay. If you've got, if you got to sit there for six, seven hours and listen to these survival testimonies, you do it as a mark of respect. There was a lady here who shared about some horrific things, and I can never experience what they experienced, but I am really, really angry. But I know why he did it. That, that evening, God gave me a dream, and it wasn't a dream, it was a nightmare. I had a dream of walking along the red-brown African sand and as I was walking along, the, the April rains came in the rainy season and it washed the mud away. And as the mud was washed away, I could see body parts coming up from the ground. And that was only a glimpse of some of the experiences that that lady had experienced 25 years ago. And one of the bodies she had to see come up when the rains came was her husband's. And that's one story. And I ain't going to share other stories. There's stuff that happened I wouldn't want you to even know. On the Saturday, David, if you just flick forward to the last slide. The, now, just go back one. Go back to one. One more. Great. Me and Billy and uh, Callum are in the fourth row behind the dignitaries. All the big, important people were in the first row. But they were very grateful at uh, Callum's attendance there and our attendance. When the world turned away 25 years ago, you've no, no idea what it means at these commemorations every April to see a white man there, a Mazungu, sympathizing with them. So we were in the fourth row beside the first aid guy. And as the many testimonies were going on, halfway through, there was a shriek and a woman stood up and ran across the, the square. There were about 50,000 people at this. This was a mass burial. Flick forward one, please, David. There were 83 or 84 coffins there with a decomposed body inside. They were being reburied. They had been found in a mass grave because somebody last year had got drunk and told everybody where there was a mass grave, where there had been graves and bodies put in and houses were built on top. So the government investigated this and they found the bodies and these are family members being reburied that were killed 25 years ago. They couldn't even recognize them. They had acid and salt poured on them and they could only recognize some of the people because of the clothes of the shoes. There was one coffin. This was not 84 bodies, just. There was one coffin for every 1,000 people found in the mass grave. 84,000 people. And that is just a portion of the 1 million people that were killed. But they're continually finding mass graves. I think they've found three quarters of the mass graves. And I think they've processed maybe 20,000 or so perpetrators. Uh, something like that. But as we were listening, this woman, as, a, as a, a young gentleman gave his testimony, a woman streaked across the front um, and screamed, and she was chased by security guards and first aiders and corralled and taken away. And then another one happened, and then another one. And I jumped up. I wanted to jump up and run. The shrieks put the fear of death into me. I wanted to jump up and bolt. But I couldn't. I was stood stuck, stuck to the ground, just staring at these people running across the past, running past the coffins, running past the square. And Callum managed to get me to sit down, but I just was so shocked. This repeated dozens of times because people were reliving the traumatic memories. As the stories were being told, people were having flashbacks to what happened to their family, and they just couldn't cope. So if you just flick slowly through the slides, there was ambulances coming, there was first aiders there, all, the, 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 all the, the, the coffins were buried in bunkers. Just keep flick through them every, every 20 seconds, just flick through them there, David. So all the ambulances were coming. Uh, there was a huge uh, amount of women, some men, but mainly women, um, really panicking, and I just really felt it. 
And if you go to the slide with the, the mattresses in the room, David, this is where they had a trauma room and all the people were gathered in there. This was afterwards. I didn't dare take a picture when this place was full. But Billy and I were went, the toilets were right next to the trauma room, so we had no option to go past this at one point. This was full of people wailing, crying, fainting, full of first aiders. There's about 20 ambulances out there from Kigali Hospital. This was full of people, and I went in afterwards, and I looked around, and I just had nothing to say, and I just stood there, and I asked that second question. I asked both of those questions that I asked this morning. God, why didn't you do something? And where were you when this happened? You can just roll them to the end, David. Where were you when this happened? Why didn't you do something? And I stood and cried. I had no answers for a short time. But then God said to me, Peter, I have done something. And he has. He sent his son 2,000 years ago in the middle of our history, but remember from eternity, to deal with all of that. Our own personal sins, the horrors of the world, the works of the devil, God has done something. And I am grateful for that. And the Rwandan survivors in the church know that. So that even in all of those commemorations and sadness, they can sing to God's praise. And that gave me solace. That's why one of those organizations is called Solace. One's called Solace, one's called Good News. And the Scottish support organization is called Comfort. Those words couldn't be more apt for Rwanda over the last 25 years. God has done something. And second question they asked, and I asked myself, I said, well, God, where were you? Jesus, where were you when all of this happened? If the devil was shaking hands with the UN commander and running amok in Rwanda, where was Jesus Christ? And the class, the college students ask this question as well, but you know, the college students are able to answer it. Kids in the church were able to answer it, just as the kids in this church were able to answer it. Even in the horrific genocide of those hundred days, which way outweighs the Holocaust, by the way. The Holocaust was six million Jews over many years with dogs, trains, and gas chambers. This was a million people in three months with machetes. If this had gone on at the rate of the Holocaust, there'd been about 25, 30 million people dead. This makes the Holocaust look like a Saturday afternoon out. Even the kids, the people in the church, when they asked themselves the question, where was Jesus in this? Did he go out? Did he cross the border and leave Rwanda to the devil? No. Now, the devil was working, don't get me wrong, but remember, the devil was right at the cross, sneering at Jesus and spitting on him and gambling for his robe and drinking wine. The devil was there, but Jesus was victorious. So even in all of this, they ask, well, where was Jesus in this? Jesus can say, look, I was there with you. I was suffering with you. And in both classes, we looked at Isaiah's prophetic words. This is the answer to the Rwandan suffering. Where was Jesus? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Let's sing a closing hymn. I believe it's You Chose the Cross. It couldn't have been a more apt one just for this point in the service. 